Hey everybody, it's Jeremy. I'm actually traveling right now. I am totally off the grid in Iceland. I thought it might be nice to bring you an episode from the past that you can listen to while I am on the road. This is one that I really enjoyed when I had this conversation originally, and I think you will too if you didn't catch it the first time around. So let's take it away. The tricky bit, Jeremy, is that government historically has been very low IQ on technology and therefore technology policy. So the fact that self-regulation hasn't worked especially well and the fact that government historically has been low IQ on technology policy means that either A, the technology sector self-regulates better or B, we raise the IQ on tech policy inside government so they can do effective tech regulation. Hi, I'm Jeremy Goldman and this is Future Proof. Alec Ross is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Industries of the Future, as well as The Raging 2020s, which came out this past September. During the Obama administration, he served as senior advisor for innovation to the Secretary of State, and he's appeared on CNN, Fareed Zakaria GPS, CNBC's Squawk Box, Bloomberg TV, among many other programs. I wanted to talk to Alec since I know he has well-informed perspectives on issues ranging from privacy to sustainability to diversity and workers' rights. And I feel like we're at an interesting inflection point as the world tries to get past the pandemic, tries to address rising inequality and increasingly frequent climate disasters. And I know he has some interesting ideas about how we can move forward. Alec, welcome to Future Proof. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Yeah, no, I think first thing I always like to start off with is, who are you and what do you do on a day-to-day basis? How do you define yourself? Goodness gracious. I think it's dangerous to define yourself. I, I have a really weird life. I live and work at the intersection of investing. I've got a venture capital fund, teaching. I'm a professor at a business school in Italy and writing. I've got this book, The Raging 2020s Out. So I live this sort of very strange interdisciplinary life. And as such, there's no typical day. I spend about 40% of my time in Europe, 60% in the United States. And unlike the many years when I was a tech executive or working for Barack Obama, I worked for President Obama for six years, where there was a lot of regimentation of what I do, I live a completely unregimented life right now. No one day looks like the last. So I know there's been a lot of talk about how much gray hair somebody gets by being president. How much gray hair would you say somebody picks up as a senior advisor for innovation in an administration? I'll tell you what, I if I knew then what I know now, I would have gotten a lot more gray hair, Because in part because we were working in really dangerous environments. Some of the work that I did was dealing with militias in the East Congo or getting into squabbles with Bashar al-Assad in Syria, restoring communication in rebel-held territory in eastern Libya during the revolution there. So I was engaging with some pretty bad actors, but I had this sort of, I tried to bring a little punk rock to work and it didn't break me down too much. I came out of it feeling as young as I think as I did going in. So I wanted to dive into some of the topics that I know are near and dear to your heart that you have strong perspectives on that are very, like I said, at the start, very well informed. How does data protection fall within your framework for how we can have a better decade ahead? I think that land was the raw material of the agricultural age. Iron was the raw material of the industrial age. And data is the raw material of today and tomorrow's world. He who owned the land and controlled the land during the hundreds of years of the agricultural age had the economic power and had the political power. 
Uh, during the industrial age, he who owned the factories or controlled access to the natural resources had the political power, had the economic power. In today and tomorrow's world, he or she who own the data, control the data, or can harvest meaning from the data are those who are really calling the shots. And in the same way in which during the agricultural age, the way in which we regulated land ownership, or during the industrial age, the way in which we regulated factories, the way in which we regulated industry, so too that shows the importance of if and how we should approach data regulation in today and tomorrow's world. For a long time, we left it to the boy billionaires of Silicon Valley to self-regulate. I know a lot of them, and they are all very smart, high IQs, but intelligence and wisdom aren't necessarily the same thing. And for all of their intelligence, there aren't a lot of stamps in those passports. There isn't, frankly, a lot of worldliness among most of them. And I think that oftentimes cultural and geopolitical context is lost in the work that they do. So I do think that on issues like data privacy, I do think that citizens and governments have got to engage at least a little bit for norm setting in the same way in which during industrialization at the beginning, nine-year-olds were allowed to work in factories and lose their hands and heads. Eventually, we created things like labor laws. We created a minimum wage. We created the 40-hour work week and other things to create some equilibrium and balance in industrialization. So too, do we need something? I think we need some measures to create a little equilibrium in our data-driven world. Well, it's interesting because I think that what you're alluding to with the Silicon Valley, which makes a lot of sense, is who, who installs the guardrails, right? And government and regulators, that's what their job is. And in some ways in our system, it seems that if you're a for-profit company that's publicly traded, you're maximizing profits. And it's almost not your job to be thinking about, sure, you don't want to drive shareholder value into the ground over time, but you are operating on a quarter by quarter basis. And that's why I feel like you might be reliant on those guardrails that are not necessarily being installed properly at the moment. Yeah. So look, companies can make choices. So in the same way in which during the early years of industrialization, it was your choice whether you were going to employ eight-year-olds to work in the factories or not. Some you, these CEOs do have agency. See, I'm, I've got a venture capital fund with over a billion dollars of assets under management. We've got more than two dozen companies working in the digital space. We are focused on generating very big returns for our investors. That does not necessarily mean that you have the proverbial eight-year-old work in the factory. Having said that, you're right. There is a role for government. There is a reason why government exists, and it is to put up the kind of guardrails that you pointed out. The tricky bit, Jeremy, is that government historically has been very low IQ on technology and therefore technology policy. So the fact that self-regulation hasn't worked especially well and the fact that government historically has been low IQ on technology policy means that one of two things need to happen. Either A, the technology sector self-regulates better, or B, we raise the IQ on tech policy inside government so they can do effective tech regulation. And I think kind of building on that, another point that you bring up is spending money with businesses that are contributing to our communities instead of necessarily to shareholders or exclusively to shareholders. And not that I necessarily uh, disagree, but why is that so important? And then I want to beat up that argument or challenge it just to have a lively conversation on it. Sure. Look, capitalism isn't all one thing. There are lots of models of capitalism, and the models of capitalism that produce the most economic growth, both in the aggregate 
as well as creating the most upward economic mobility, was a period that's largely been defined as stakeholder capitalism, the period after the Second World War into and through the 60s. Shareholder capitalism is great for making wealthy people wealthy people wealthier. And look, I've, I am now in the 1%. I am now among the capital holders. And so the benefits of shareholder capitalism come straight to people like me. The problem with that is that I represent less than 1% of the population. And ultimately, in order for capitalism to work, uh, and believe me, we need capitalism to work because it is the best way of generating growth, wealth, and then I do believe distributing that wealth, is to make sure that with every dollar that's earned, is to make sure that not every last cent goes to shareholders, but that it also goes to a broader set of stakeholders, including employees, including community organizations and what have you. And the kind of rage that exists in America right now, and hence the title of my book, The Raging 2020s, is a byproduct in no small part because of the growth of shareholder capitalism, the growth of a sort of Mad Max-like capitalism. So I think you raise some really interesting points. And I think that what's also interesting to me is that I don't know how necessarily consumers get out of this. In my mind, it's a little bit of a death spiral in the sense that let's say if you have a local community driven company that you want to support, but you can do, uh, you can save a little bit of money uh, by buying, let's say, from a multinational conglomerate. And because you're so strapped for cash, because there is a widening divide between the haves and have-nots that you talk about, then isn't that one of those things that forces people to go against that's that advice to support the community-driven company? It just seems to be like one of those things where it makes a lot of sense, but it's very hard to do it because we're all, a lot of people are, are already in a bit of a hole. That's right. So listen, people who are in a bit of a hole need to maximize for their household's well-being. And so if they can save an extra 75 cents buying something from Amazon versus buying something from the local small business, maybe they should. But what I believe is that we can create a more even playing field through things like tax policy. So for example, in the last five years, let's talk about whether you're going to go to your local coffee shop or you're going to go to Starbucks. Starbucks in multiple years over the past five years, has paid zero in federal taxes, meaning one minimum wage earning 17-year-old barista, the young woman who made your cappuccino for you in the morning. That one woman paid more in federal taxes in a given year than Starbucks did. And you know what? I bet that locally owned coffee shop down the street with a local proprietor, and which doesn't have a second store, probably paid more in federal taxes than all of Starbucks that year. One FedEx driver in multiple years recently has paid more than all of FedEx Corp. And so what we have is we have a malignance in our tax policy, for example, that actually takes that choice of whether you're going to spend a little bit more at a locally owned operation versus a global conglomerate and skews it further because the local coffee shop can't offshore their ownership like a Starbucks can. They can't tax optimize in the way that a big company with an army of lawyers and accountants can. So I think that this is a case where the onus for doing the right thing shouldn't come down to the person who's strapped for cash. It should come down to policymakers who put our tax policy regimes in place. Yeah. And it's funny because you actually started anticipating 
my next question, because I think that you have some interesting data and you alluded to this with uh, Starbucks, citing some interesting data that people might not be aware of uh, with respect to the tax burden that companies like a FedEx or a Starbucks pay. And I don't know, I, you might have better data on this than me, but does the average person, are they even aware of the fact that there is that strange, it's not quite loophole, it's the way that things are you know, built in this uh, country. And if there was more awareness of that lack of federal tax burden for some corporations, would people start to actually care more? Because I feel like you and I might be, are we aberrations that the very fact that we're aware of this and a lot of people aren't? That's why, look, that's part of why I wrote about tax in this book, The Raging 2020s. It's not, look, that's not a topic that's designed to have books fly off the shelves. But I did think it was important to have a chapter on the book because it's incredibly complicated. It's incredibly boring, but it's also a skeleton key for unlocking a lot of what doesn't work in the United States right now. So I did write about it in what I hope is a really accessible way. But the fact that our that tax is so remarkably complex contributes to the problem. It keeps most people from understanding it. It keeps most people, frankly, from being able to maximize their benefit through it. So it's one of those things that actually widens the gulf between the wealthiest people, the wealthiest companies, and everybody else. Yeah. I, and I, I think that it is interesting. There are a lot of people who will all point to the the Nordics. And I think that's something that I know you do a little bit in the book. I'm wondering how we can learn from other societies like the Nordic uh, countries on how to not just re- respond to the pandemic, but also do things like uh, pay for college or manage the cost of childcare. It, it seems that there's a lot of pushback to say, well, that works for them. That's the way that they operate. Is there a way to operate like that and not lose what makes us American? I think that's what the underlying concern that a lot of people have. No, that's right. Look, the great America's greatest strength and its greatest weakness is its culture of individualism. We are a much less collectivist culture than just about any other. The very act of coming to the United States, unless you're on a slave ship, the very act of coming to the United States was an act of entrepreneurship. Go west, young man, the settling of the frontier, the settling of the unknown, that was an act of entrepreneurship. So entrepreneurship and hyper-individualism are baked into our cultural and political character. Unfortunately, that also can exact a pretty substantial toll because it basically means we individualize our social contract. Whereas in countries like the Nordics, things are much more collective. And I think that there are many examples that we can learn from. So let me just give an example, the universality of benefits. So what I say when I'm, what I mean when I say that is, We means test everything in the United States. If you earn below this, then you get X. If you earn below this, you get Y. Whereas in the Nordic countries, benefits are universal, and therefore they are much more broadly accepted, and it doesn't create the divisions between classes that tends to happen in the United States. But another aspect of it is it means that it is more expensive. If everybody has access to these programs and every, if you have universal benefits as opposed to means-tested benefits, it's more expensive. So the cost of the safety net is more expensive in, in Nordic countries, but I believe it's more expensive over the short term 
Whereas over the long term, it's beneficial because we have costs in the United States related to things like incarceration, homelessness, and other things that are so expensive that I think it justifies the short-term expenses to have a strong and universal safety net. Yeah, it is interesting because it becomes a little bit of uh, an identity, if you will, right? There are certain things that people are tied to because it just seems, well, it's part of them, right? You have a bit of uh, facial hair now. You didn't used to. That's not necessarily part of your identity either way. So that's something that's very easy for people to switch. And yet when it comes to voting in a certain way or supporting a greater social safety net, it just seems that it's more difficult for people to change their minds uh, because they already have their minds made up because it's there's just too much of an identity shift in order to change position on something like that. Oh, I think that's well said. And the, look, the other challenge the United States has is its diversity. It's oftentimes much more easy to manage a cohesive society when everybody looks like you, has the same religion, has the same background, whereas the diversity within the United States, while also one of our greatest strengths, 40% of the Fortune 500 was founded by immigrants or the children of Im- immigrants, it also makes it much more difficult to have a cohesive society. So our, this is another example of our great, one of our greatest strengths being in, other, in another respect, one of our greatest weaknesses. Another thing that was really interesting to me, and I'm wondering what takeaways people can take from this, is just how we deal with disasters, how we solve problems, and who's best equipped to solve uh, different problems within our country, referring to the U.S., but I know we have a lot of people listening all over the world. But you cited some interesting information about how when it came to providing relief in Puerto Rico during Hurricane Maria, a small nonprofit was able to outperform a significant expenditure from a governmental entity. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. And what lessons should we take from that? Sure. So the story I told was about FEMA, uh, the Federal Emergency Management Administration, which has a budget of over $10 billion a year and thousands and thousands of employees. And it has the mission, it has the job of responding to disasters. And when the hurricane hit in Puerto Rico, I'll spare you the details, you can read about it in the book, but it performed disastrously, absolutely disastrously. And by contrast, a, a, a very modestly sized nonprofit started by an immigrant, Jose Andres, a Spanish immigrant to the United States, who's a very well-known and highly regarded chef, did a spectacular job providing tens of thousands, eventually hundreds of thousands of meals to Puerto Ricans in need, doing so not just more effectively than the federal government did, but actually doing more of it, actually responding at greater scale. And the lesson that I take from this in part is also a product of my own time in government, which is that the the operations of government have become so complex, so complicated, and so larded down by bureaucracy and cost that it becomes increasingly difficult to do anything. If you think about it, 100 years ago and 100 plus years ago, we built uh, water systems, we built bridges, we built subway systems. 70 years ago, we built a national highway system. Now, if you want to add a lane to a highway, it takes years and costs billions of dollars. So things that used that we used to be able to do now seemingly we can't. And it's not because we've gotten stupid. 
it's not because we become less technologically sophisticated. It's because we've larded down the operations of government with so much bureaucracy that it's impossible to do things that we were able to do 100 years ago. And I think that's one of those things where, again, not to get political, but it seems to me that people say large expenditures are never worth it because they're thinking about all these inefficiencies that they witness when the answer is large is not necessarily the problem. The problem is the inefficient process, the bureaucracy. And if you can find a way to whittle those things down while still having probably the right guardrails in place, because you don't want nothing, but you do want to figure out how can you streamline, how can you audit these things? No, look, that's exactly right. And there's also a great danger in actually not doing the big infrastructure projects, not doing the big projects. Ports were the infrastructure of the 18th century. Rail was the infrastructure of the 19th century. Highways were the infrastructure of the 20th century. High-speed broadband networks are the infrastructure of the 21st century. And it's interesting to me, if you look at the, the countries that dominated, you know, ports, then rail, then highways, and, and now broadband, those are the states that, those are the countries that compete most effectively economically. And in fact, big investments in infrastructure, it's like putting protein into the body of an economy. Nothing actually helps build muscles, so to speak, in an economy more than substantial infrastructure investment. So we actually have to figure out how to make this work. Otherwise, we get left behind like the British Empire of 250 years ago. How do you think that we can accomplish uh, all of this in such a polarized environment? And again, specifically speaking of the U.S., it just seems to me that it's very difficult if you can't agree on anything. If you can't say there are certain shared values that we all agree on, let's at least start from there and then we can provide solutions around that. It seems that if we don't have a few places where we have shared values, it's difficult to get that consensus needed to get some of these things. No, you're exactly right, Jeremy. Look, if there were a resolution in the United States Senate right now that said, be it resolved, the sun will rise in the east and set in the west, it'd probably be a 50-50 vote. Infrastructure, for example, is one of those things that you don't necessarily associate with a political party. Biden just had an infrastructure bill, and Trump always said he wanted to do a trillion-dollar infrastructure bill. But unfortunately, we are so divided right now, it's made it much more difficult to govern. And I don't know a way out of this other than good old-fashioned leadership. This is not something that we can outsource to algorithms. We need people who can work across political lines, across geographic lines, across generational lines. And if we can't, then we should just give up. If we can't, then we will really be a a country split entirely in two. But if we don't have leaders who can cross these boundaries, then we're going to have exactly what we have today, which is Hutu versus Tutsi, an almost tribal form of conflict in Washington. So, it's interesting because I don't want to put words in your mouth about how optimistic you are. And it seems to me one of the things that we're generally trying to do uh, with the show is to provide ideas about where things might be going and uh, even have ideas that flow out there where we don't necessarily think that it's going to happen. But we at least put the idea out there because if you don't put it out, then there's no chance of it happening. So I don't want to put words in your mouth about how optimistic or not 
you are, but how do you feel about our actual prospects and where will the U.S. likely be in your totally pragmatic, honest mind 20 uh, years from now, let's say? Sure. So 20 years from now, will the future look, will will the world look more like Star Trek or more like Mad Max? The way that I think about it is I I choose to be optimistic, first of all, because only optimists change the world. I do believe that to be true. And I do think that when we've been challenged, when we have been, when things have been at their worst for the United States, our better angels emerge. Having said that, we're in a really difficult set of circumstances right now. We We are, I believe, more divided today than we've been since the Civil War. I don't think you can actually find a point in the past 160 years when we were more divided than we are presently. Part of what I tried to do with the Raging 2020s was not, look, I don't use the word Democrat or Republican. The words Trump, Biden, Obama, Clinton, none of those words even appear in the book. But I do try to lay out issues and choices that we have that can tilt us more toward a future that looks like Star Trek and away from Mad Max. If things remain the same, Jeremy, if we don't change anything at all, we're on a trajectory that takes us more toward Mad Max. Yeah, I think if uh, anything, Mad Max might look like a, a utopia compared to where we're heading if we don't make those edits. But uh, but you're right, at the very least, the very fact that we're creating awareness uh, for some of the challenges that we're up against probably does give us a little bit of, uh, of hope and for, forces us in the right direction, or at least considers the opportunity to change course. So at least that we've got that going for us. No, look, I'll give one positive example. In my first book, The Industries of the Future, I wrote about the the commercialization of genomics. And I wrote about this technology that wasn't really in practice then called mRNA. And now we have vaccines that we're, we were able to produce. Moderna was able to produce a functional vaccine 48 hours after the genetic code of the virus was emailed to it. The the technology that went into developing our COVID vaccines is the same technology that can be used to fight things like cancer and other and other malignancies. And so look, the day that I was born 49 years ago, global life expectancy was 58. Today it's 72. I think one note of optimism is that I think that number is going to go over 80. And I think it's going to be, I think it's going to happen pretty quickly too. And I think it's going to be because of developments in science that not just enable us to live longer lives, but enable the lives that while we're living to be healthier. And so I, for all of the challenges that we have economically or politically, there are other great things happening that are going to impact the vast majority of our lives in a very positive way. I think that's a nice, happy note to uh, end on. Alec, this was uh, really fascinating. Thanks so much for making the time. Thank you for having me, Jeremy. Thanks again to Alec for making the time. I really think some of those ideas are certainly worth considering and not definitely I would advocate to not think about what a side of any type of political spectrum you're on, but go check out the book, see if these ideas make sense to you. And really, you should judge every idea on its own merits as opposed to anything else. If you like what you just heard and this is your first time here, be sure to subscribe. Apple Podcasts, Overcast, Stitcher, the choice is yours. And if you're a longtime listener, please remember to rate and review Future Proof as that's the number one way we get the show in front of people just like you. Special thanks this week to associate producers Jason Stack and B. Cortuccio. Once again, I'm Jeremy Goldman, and you've been listening to Future Proof.